In the 20th century, there was one woman who put herself at the center of the world of modern art. She didn't just collect art. She befriended starving artists. She discovered many unknown artists. And she had affairs with many other artists. Her obsession with modern art resulted in one of the greatest collections of modern art ever assembled in the 20th century. Learn more about Peggy Guggenheim and her obsession with modern art on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Harry's Razors. I want to tell you a quick story. Several years ago, I was a podcast listener just like you, and I was listening to one of my favorite history podcasts. One of the ads on the show was for a company called Harry's Razors. I was extremely dissatisfied with the razors I was using at the time, so I figured I'd give these Harry's Razors a try. And it was a great decision, and I have been a customer of Harry's Razors ever since. I use Harry's Razors at home, and I've taken them with me on trips around the world. Not only does Harry's Razors provide a smooth shave, but they do so at a much lower price than their competitors, which if you've checked out the price of razor blades lately at the store, that is not something to sneeze at. Don't settle for the status quo. You can blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash everything. That's harrys.com slash everything for a $3 trial set. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. The woman known to the world as Peggy Guggenheim was born Marguerite Guggenheim in 1898 in New York City. To say that she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth would be an understatement. Her father was Benjamin Guggenheim, who was the son of Meyer Guggenheim, who established the Guggenheim family fortune. Meyer Guggenheim was a Jewish immigrant from Switzerland who made a fortune in mining and smelting. By the time Peggy was born, the Guggenheims were one of the wealthiest families in the world. And that was just her father's side of the family. Her mother was Florette Siegelman, who was the daughter of Joseph Siegelman, the founder of J&W Siegelman & Company, one of the largest investment banks in the United States in the 19th century. When Peggy was 14 years old, her father was killed on the Titanic. As you can guess, he was one of those guys dressed in a tuxedo going down at the ship drinking champagne casualties on the Titanic, not one of the people stuck in third-class casualties on the Titanic. Her uncle was Solomon Guggenheim, who was also extremely wealthy and who established the Solomon Guggenheim Foundation, which built the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. And for the record, while Peggy Guggenheim was heavily involved in the world of art and shared the same name as her uncle, she traveled a very different path than that of her uncle and his foundation, 
as you'll soon see. When Peggy turned 21, she inherited $2.5 million. It was simultaneously a lot of money and not nearly as much as it could have been. Her father Benjamin wasn't as successful as his brother Solomon, so she didn't receive nearly as much as some of her cousins. However, she received this money in 1919, when a million dollars really meant something. Adjusted for inflation, it would be about $44 million today. Not too shabby for someone who's 21. Despite not at all needing the money, she took a job as a clerk at a bookstore in Manhattan known as the Sunwise Turn. The Sunwise Turn was an avant-garde bookstore, and it was her job at the bookstore that introduced her to the community of avant-garde artists in New York. Having gotten a taste of this world, she soon set off for Paris to live in 1920. In Paris, in the Montparnasse neighborhood, she inserted herself into a community of modern artists, most of whom were living like stereotypical starving artists. It was there she befriended the likes of the French Dadaist artist Marcel Duchamp and the Romanian sculptor Constantin Brancusi. She became friends with other American women writers who came to Paris, such as Natalie Barney and the painter and writer Romain Brooks. She also befriended the surrealist painters Yves Tanguay and Salvador Dali. She joined in the salons in Paris, where artists would discuss their theories of art and their projects. She was photographed by the photographer Mon Ray and was dressed by the legendary designer Paul Perrault. She rented a farmhouse in Devon, England in the summers where artists would come to work. The author Dejuna Barnes was staying there when she wrote her book Nightwood. In 1922, she married the Dada artist Lawrence Vale, but the marriage only lasted until 1928. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, Peggy Guggenheim became a staple in modern art circles. She wrote her own biography during this period, which was originally titled Out of This Century. And I should note that despite being a central figure in the world of modern art, she was not an artist herself and never showed any desire to become one. But despite never having been formally trained in art, she became a voracious collector starting in 1935. She relied more on instinct than anything else in assessing what she would purchase. Her first acquisition was a sculpture from Jean Arp titled Head and Shell. She later was reported to have said, quote, The instant I felt it, I wanted to own it. She also had affairs, many affairs, with many of the artists that she met during this period. Things changed for Guggenheim with the onset of the Second World War. As a Jewish woman in Europe, the climate was such that she thought it best to leave, so she moved to London, where she opened up her first art gallery in 1938. Her mother had died in 1937, leaving her another large inheritance. Her gallery was called Guggenheim Jeune, which was a purposeful attempt to associate herself with the Paris gallery of a similar name, Bernheim Jeune. Her decision to open a gallery was prompted by the Irish novelist Samuel Beckett, whom she had an affair with, who said to her that, quote, one should be interested in art of one's time, something she took as a personal motto. She was assisted in the planning for the gallery by her long-term friend, Marshal Duchamp. Her first showing was of drawings by the French artist Jean Cocteau, who later went on to achieve fame as a film director. She held multiple showings, sometimes with multiple artists on a theme and sometimes with individual artists. The artists that she showcased were like a who's who of modern art, and she would always purchase at least one work from every show that she held. However, the gallery didn't last long. After losing money her first year, and in no small part prompted by the activities of her uncle back in New York, she made the decision to start a museum of modern art in Europe. With the start of the war in Europe in 1939, her collecting went into overdrive. She made trips to Paris and focused on purchasing paintings by surrealists and other modern artists that were woefully undervalued. 
Given the antipathy of the Nazis to modern art, she was able to buy an enormous amount of art during this period for extremely low prices. During her 1939 trip to France, she spent $40,000 on art, averaging one purchase a day, on a collection that today is worth billions. The German invasion of France in 1940 scuttled her plans for opening her museum in Paris. Moreover, the Louvre refused to protect her art collection as it did for other galleries. She literally had to have her collection packed and labeled as household goods, hidden with plates and furniture, under an assumed non-Jewish name, and shipped by sea back to the United States, where there was a serious risk of the entire collection being lost in a German U-boat attack. In 1941, she reluctantly moved back to New York after securing the safety of her art collection and the transportation of many of her artist friends. And in 1941, she also married the German artist Max Ernst in what was to be her second and final marriage. In New York in 1942, she opened up another gallery on 57th Street called The Art of This Century. It was intended to be an outpost for European avant-garde artists in the United States while the war was being conducted. However, she soon began championing American artists she discovered while she was in New York. Some of the artists that she supported, including Robert Motherwell, Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, Wolfgang Pollen, Clifford Still, and her husband, Max Ernst. Her discovery of Jackson Pollock and his subsequent rise to fame was one of her proudest accomplishments. By the time she opened up her New York gallery in 1942, she had an assembled one of the world's most impressive collections of modern art in a span of just seven years. She soon found herself in an open feud with Hilary Bay, the artist who was the curator for the Solomon Guggenheim Museum, which had opened in 1937, albeit not in the building where it currently exists. They had serious disagreements about art. Ribet once told her, quote, Your gallery will be the last one for our foundation to use if the need should ever force us to use a sales gallery. You will soon find that you are propagating mediocrity, if not trash. End quote. The end of the war changed things once again for Peggy. She divorced Max Ernst in 1946, closed her New York gallery, and moved back to Europe. This time, however, she didn't move to Paris or London, where she had lived before. Rather, she moved to Venice, Italy. She purchased the 18th century villa, the Palazzo Venier de Leone, which was situated on the Grand Canal. Her new home became a showcase for her art collection. While in Venice, she brought the works of American artists to the attention of the European art community. She had, at this time, become the bridge between the American and European worlds of art. She became a fixture in Venice, developing a reputation as an eccentric, rich American art collector. She was famous for her butterfly sunglasses and her Lhasa Apso dogs. In the 1960s, she began to shift her focus from collecting to the display and preservation of her collection. She began loaning parts of her collection out to other museums, and in 1969, after decades of conflict, she finally came to terms with the Guggenheim Museum in New York and lent them some of her collection for a showing. In 1976, at the age of 78, she signed over her entire collection and her house to the Solomon Guggenheim Foundation. Peggy Guggenheim passed away from a stroke in 1979 at the age of 81. Despite having donated her collection to the Guggenheim Foundation, that did not mean her entire collection was shipped back to New York. The Peggy Guggenheim Museum was opened in her house in Venice, and it's open to the public today. It remains perhaps the greatest collection of early 20th century art in Europe, and perhaps the entire world. My interest in this story, and the life of Peggy Guggenheim, began when I visited the Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice, and I recommend it to anyone if you happen to be visiting. For someone who wasn't herself an artist, 
Peggy Guggenheim played a central role in the discovery and promotion of many of the greatest artists of the 20th century. And it wasn't just a few artists. She had personal connections, sometimes extremely personal connections, with an enormous swath of the modern and avant-garde community throughout the 20th century. The world of 20th century art would have been completely different if it wasn't for Peggy Guggenheim. For Peggy, art was actually an obsession. Her autobiography, which was originally titled Out of the Century, was later republished with the title Confessions of an Art Addict. She was extremely open about her many affairs and was upfront about how she often began relationships simply because she wanted a piece of art. When asked about her obsession with art in her collection, she once responded, quote, I am not an art collector. I am a museum. The executive producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Charles Daniel. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. I just want to thank everyone, including the show's producers, who support the show over on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, just head over to Patreon.com, which is currently the only place where you can get show merchandise. Also, if you want to talk to other listeners about the show, head over to our Facebook group or Discord server, both of which have links in the show notes.